Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for February 28, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page today, the first story is about the war in the Middle East. The headline says, Israel, Hamas, say no deal imminent. Sides cool optimism after Biden suggests Gaza deal is close. Israel and Hamas on Tuesday played down chances of an imminent breakthrough in talks for a ceasefire in Gaza after U.S. President Joe Biden said Israel agreed to pause its offensive during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan if a deal is reached to release some hostages. The president's remarks came on the eve of the Michigan primary, where he faces pressure from the state's large Arab-American population over his staunch support for Israel's offensive. Biden said he was briefed on the status of talks by his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, but said his comments reflected his optimism for a deal, not that all the remaining hurdles were overcome. In the wake of Hamas' October 7 attack on southern Israel, Israel's air, sea, and ground campaign in Gaza has killed tens of thousands of people, obliterated large swaths of the urban landscape, and displaced 80% of the battered enclave's population. Israel's seal on the territory, which allows in only a trickle of aid, has sparked alarm that a famine could be imminent, according to the United Nations. With UN truck deliveries of aid hampered by the lack of safe corridors, Egypt, Jordan, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and France conducted an airdrop of food, medical supplies, and other aid into Gaza on Tuesday. At a beach in southern Gaza, boxes of supplies dropped from military aircraft drifted down on parachutes as thousands of Palestinians ran along the sand to retrieve them. But alarm is growing over worsening hunger among Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians. Two infants died from dehydration and malnutrition at Kamal Adwan Hospital in Gaza City, said the spokesman for Gaza's health ministry, Ashraf al-Kidra. He warned that infant mortality threatens to surge. Dehydration and malnutrition will kill thousands of children and pregnant women in the Gaza Strip, he said. The UN Population Fund said the Al-Halal Al-Emirati Maternity Hospital in Gaza's southernmost town of Rafah reported that newborns were dying because mothers were unable to get prenatal or postnatal care. Premature births are also rising, forcing staff to put four or five newborns in a single incubator. Most of them do not survive, it said, without giving figures on the numbers of deaths. Now the prospect of an invasion of Rafa has prompted global alarm over the fate of around 1.4 million civilians trapped there. Talks to pause the fighting have gained momentum recently and were underway Tuesday. Negotiators from the United States, Egypt, and Qatar have been working to broker a ceasefire that would see Hamas free some of the dozens of hostages it holds in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners, a six-week halt in fighting, and an increase in aid deliveries to Gaza. The start of Ramadan, 
which is expected to be around March 10, is seen as an unofficial deadline for a deal. The month is a time of heightened religious observance and dawn-to-dusk fasting for hundreds of millions of us Muslims around the world. Israeli-Palestinian tensions have flared in the past during the holy month. Ramadan's coming up, and there has been an agreement by the Israelis that they would not engage in activities during Ramadan as well, in order to give us time to get all the hostages out, Biden said in an appearance on NBC's Late Night with Seth Meyers that was recorded on Monday. In separate comments the same day, Biden said he'd hoped a ceasefire deal could take effect by next week. At the same time, Biden did not call for an end to the war. In Hamas' cross-border raid on October 7, an estimated 1,200 people, mostly civilians, were killed, and militants took 250 people captive, according to Israeli authorities. Israeli officials said Biden's comments came as a surprise and were not made in coordination with the country's leadership. A Hamas official played down any sense of progress, saying the group wouldn't soften its demands. The Israeli officials who spoke on condition of anonymity because they weren't authorized to discuss the sensitive talks with the media said Israel wants a deal immediately, but that Hamas continues to push excessive demands. They also said that Israel is insisting that female soldiers be part of the first group of hostages released under any truce deal. Hamas official Ahmad Abdel Hadi indicated that optimism on a deal was premature. The resistance is not interested in giving up any of its demands, and what is proposed does not meet what it had requested, he told the pan-Arab TV channel El Mayadeen. Hamas has previously demanded that Israel end the war as part of any deal, which Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called delusional. At a news conference in Doha on Tuesday, Qatar Foreign Ministry spokesperson Majed al-Ansari said his country felt optimistic about the talks, without elaborating. A senior official from Egypt has said the draft deal includes the release of up to 40 women and older hostages in return for up to 300 Palestinian prisoners, mostly women, minors, and older people. Netanyahu has said a ground operation in Rafah is an inevitable component of Israel's strategy for crushing Hamas. This week, the military submitted for cabinet approval operational plans for the offensive, as well as evacuation plans for civilians there. Israel's offensive in Gaza has killed more than 29,700 people, most of them women and children, according to the health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza. It does not distinguish between fighters and civilians in its count. Also on the front page, an article entitled Trump-Biden-Win-Michigan Edge Closer to November Rematch. Biden faces challenge from, quote, uncommitted, close quote, protest votes. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump won the Michigan primaries on Tuesday, further solidifying the all-but-certain rematch between the two men.
Biden defeated Minnesota Representative Dean Phillips, his one significant opponent left in the Democratic primary. But Democrats were also closely watching the results of the, quote, uncommitted, close quote, vote, as Michigan has become the epicenter for dissatisfied members of Biden's coalition that propelled him to victory in the state and nationally in 2020. In early returns, the number of uncommitted votes had already exceeded the 10,000 vote margin by which Trump won Michigan in 2016, surpassing a goal set by organizers of the protest effort. As for Trump, he has now swept the first five states on the Republican primary calendar. His victory in Michigan over his last major primary challenger, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, comes after the former president defeated her by 20 percentage points in her home state of South Carolina on Saturday. The Trump campaign is looking to lock up the 1,215 delegates needed to secure the Republican nomination sometime in mid-March. Both campaigns are watching Tuesday's results for more than just whether they won as expected. For Biden, a large number of voters choosing uncommitted could mean he's in significant trouble with parts of the Democratic base in a state he can hardly afford to lose in November. Trump, meanwhile, has underperformed with suburban voters and people with a college degree and faces a faction within his own party that believes he broke the law in one or more of the criminal cases against him. Biden has already sailed to wins in South Carolina, Nevada, and New Hampshire. The New Hampshire factory came via a write-in campaign as Biden did not formally appear on the ballot after the state broke the national party rules by going ahead of South Carolina, which had been designated to go first among the Democratic nominating contests. Both White House and Biden campaign officials have made trips to Michigan in recent weeks to talk with community leaders about the Israel-Hamas war and how Biden has approached the conflict. But those leaders, along with organizers of the uncommitted effort, have been undeterred. The robust grassroots effort, which has been encouraging voters to select uncommitted as a way to register objections to his handling of Israel's ongoing war in Gaza, has been Biden's most significant political challenge in the early contests. That push, which began in earnest just a few weeks ago, has been backed by officials such as Democratic Representative Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman in Congress, and former Representative Andy Levine. Our Revolution the organizing group, once tied to Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent from Vermont, had also urged progressive voters to choose uncommitted Tuesday, saying it would send a message to Biden to, quote, change course now on Gaza or else risk losing Michigan to Trump in November. Trump's dominance of the early states is unparalleled since 1976, when Iowa and New Hampshire began their tradition of holding the first nominating contest. He has won resounding support from most pockets of the Republican voting base, including evangelical voters 
conservatives, and those who live in rural areas. But Trump has struggled with college-educated voters losing that block in South Carolina to Haley on Saturday night. Even senior figures in the Republican Party, who have been skeptical of Trump, are increasingly falling in line. South Dakota Senator John Thune, the number two Senate Republican who has been critical of the party's standard bearer, endorsed Trump for president on Sunday. Still, Haley has vowed to continue her campaign through at least Super Tuesday on March 5, pointing to a not insignificant swath of Republican primary voters who have continued to support her despite Trump's tightening grip on the GOP. She also outraised Trump's primary campaign committee by almost $3 million in January. That indicates that some donors continue to look at Haley, despite her long-shot prospects, as an alternative to Trump should his legal problems imperil his chances of becoming the nominee. Two of Trump's political committees raised just $13.8 million in January, according to campaign finance reports released last week, while collectively spending more than they took in. Much of the money spent from Trump's political committee is the millions of dollars in legal fees to cover his court costs. On page two, we find an article entitled Army Plans to Slash Thousands of Jobs. Cuts will mostly be for already empty posts. The U.S. Army plans to slash the size of its force by about 24,000, almost 5%, and restructure to be better able to fight the next major war as the service struggles with recruiting shortfalls that made it impossible to bring in enough soldiers to fill all the jobs. The cuts will mainly be in already empty posts, not actual soldiers, including in jobs related to counterinsurgency that swelled during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars but are not needed as much today. About 3,000 of the cuts would come from Army Special Operations Forces. At the same time, however, the plan will add about 7,500 troops in other critical missions, including air defense and counter-drone units, and five new task forces around the world with enhanced cyber, intelligence, and long-range strike capabilities. According to an Army document, the service is significantly overstructured, and there aren't enough soldiers to fill existing units. The cuts, it said, are spaces, not faces, and the Army will not be asking soldiers to leave the force. Instead, the decision reflects the reality that for years the Army hasn't been able to fill thousands of empty posts. While the Army, as it's currently structured, can have up to 494,000 soldiers, the number of active duty soldiers right now is about 445,000. Under the new plan, the goal is to bring in enough troops over the next five years to reach a level of 470,000. The planned overhaul comes after two decades of war in Iraq and Afghanistan that forced the Army to quickly and dramatically expand to fill the brigades sent to the battlefront. That included a massive counterinsurgency mission to battle al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and the Islamic State group. Over time, the military's focus shifted 
to great power competition from adversaries such as China and Russia, and threats from Iran and North Korea. The war in Ukraine has shown the need for greater emphasis on air defense systems and high-tech abilities both to use and counter airborne and sea-based drones. According to the plan, the Army will cut about 10,000 spaces for engineers and similar jobs that were tied to counterinsurgency missions. An additional 2,700 cuts will come from units that don't deploy often and can be trimmed, and 6,500 will come from various training and other posts. There also will be about 10,000 posts cut from cavalry squadrons, striker brigade combat teams, infantry brigade combat teams, and security force assistance brigades, which are used to train foreign forces. In the last fiscal year, which ended September 30, the Navy, Army, and Air Force all failed to meet their recruitment goals, while the Marine Corps and the tiny Space Force met their targets the Army brought in a bit more than 50,000 recruits, falling well short of the publicly stated stretch goal of 65,000. The previous fiscal year, the Army also missed its enlistment goal by 15,000. That year, the goal was 60,000. In response to the service launched a sweeping overhaul of its recruiting last fall to focus more on young people who have spent time in college or are job hunting early in their careers. It is forming a new professional force of recruiters rather than relying on soldiers randomly assigned to the task. In discussing the changes at the time, Army Secretary Christine Wormuth acknowledged that the service hasn't been recruiting well for many more years than one would think from just looking at the headlines in the last 18 months. The service, she said, hasn't met its annual goal for new enlistment contracts since 2014. In National and World News on page 3, we first find an article entitled Biden Urges House Vote. President Wants Action to Approve Foreign Aid, Avoid Federal Shutdown. Congressional leaders emerged from an intense Oval Office meeting with President Joe Biden on Tuesday speaking optimistically about the prospects for avoiding a partial government shutdown, but with new uncertainty for aid, about aid for Ukraine and Israel. Biden called the leaders to the White House in hopes of making progress against a legislative logjam on Capitol Hill that has major ramifications not just for the U.S., but for the world as Ukraine struggles to repel Russia's invasion with weapons and ammunition starting to run short. The need is urgent, Biden said of the Ukraine aid. The consequences of inaction every day in Ukraine are dire. Biden hosted House Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat from New York, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, in the Oval Office, along with Vice President Kamala Harris. After the more than hour-long meeting, Biden pulled Johnson aside for a private conversation. Democratic leaders, upon exiting the meeting, were blunt about the dangers Ukraine is facing. 
We said to the speaker, get it done, said Schumer. I said, I've been around here a long time. It's maybe four or five times that history is looking over your shoulder. And if you don't do the right thing, whatever the immediate politics are, you will regret it. Referring to Johnson, he said, really, it's in his hands. It's in his hands. Schumer, joined by Jeffries in describing how the meeting went, called the session one of the most intense I've ever encountered in the Oval Office. Johnson spoke to reporters on his own without Senate Republican leader McConnell by his side. McConnell voted for a $95 billion foreign aid bill this month that would aid Ukraine and Israel, replenish U.S. defense systems, and provide humanitarian assistance for Gaza and the West Bank, Ukraine, and other populations caught in conflict zones. The bill passed the Senate 70 to 29, but the Republican-led House has not acted on it, despite pleas from McConnell and others for action. Johnson, who rejected a U.S.-Mexico border security compromise that was eventually stripped from the final product, signaled no change in his position on Ukraine aid. He said the Senate's package does nothing to secure the U.S.-Mexico border the GOP's demand in return for helping Ukraine. And now an article regarding the war in Ukraine. Officials, EU won't send troops. Zelensky meets with Saudi Arabian leader to push for a peace plan. From Brussels, European military heavyweights Germany and Poland affirmed on Tuesday that they would not send troops to Ukraine after reports that some Western countries might consider doing so as the war with Russia enters its third year. The head of NATO also said the U.S.-led military alliance has no plans to send troops to Ukraine. The Kremlin, meanwhile, warns that a direct conflict between NATO and Russia would be inevitable if the alliance sends combat troops. In this case, we need to talk not about probability, but about the inevitability of conflict. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said. Moscow's warning came a day after French President Emmanuel Macron said that sending in Western ground troops should not be ruled out in the future, after hosting a conference of top officials from more than 20 of Ukraine's Western backers. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz appeared to have a different view of what happened in Paris. He said participants agreed that there will be no ground troops, no soldiers on Ukrainian soil who are sent there by European states or NATO states. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg told the Associated Press that NATO allies are providing unprecedented support to Ukraine. We have done that since 2014 and stepped up after the full-scale invasion but there are no plans for NATO combat troops on the ground in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in Saudi Arabia on Tuesday and met the kingdom's powerful crown prince to push for a peace plan and the return of prisoners of war from Russia. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman seeks to position himself as a potential mediator to end the war between Ukraine and Russia, even as Riyadh remains closely aligned with Russia on energy policies through the OPEC plus group of countries. 
The day before, the prince hosted Vyacheslav Volodin, the chairman of Russia's Duma, the lower house of its parliament, and a host of other Russian officials. Zelensky's trip came as Kyiv's forces were slowly being pushed back in eastern Ukraine. Russia has gained the initiative due, its, due to its big advantage in troop numbers and weapons supplies, analysts say. In another article on page 3, entitled EPA Awards $1 Billion to Clean Up Toxic Waste, grants are the third installment of Federal Superfund Program. 25 toxic waste sites in 15 states are to be cleaned up, and ongoing work at dozens of others will get a funding boost, as the Environmental Protection Agency on Tuesday announced a $1 billion infusion to the Federal Superfund Program. The money is the third and last installment in the $3.5 billion allocated under the 2021 Infrastructure Law signed by President Joe Biden. It will help clear a backlog of hazardous sites such as old landfills, mines, and manufacturing facilities targeted by the 44-year-old Superfund program. The Superfund program was established in 1980 to clean up sites contaminated with hazardous substances. There are more than 1,300 Superfund sites across the country, the EPA said. The program languished for years because of a lack of funding, but has been replenished after Congress included a polluter pays tax in the 2021 infrastructure law. The tax took effect in 2022 and is set to collect up to $23 billion over the next five years, said Representative Frank Pallone, a Democrat from New Jersey. Tuesday's announcement follows more than $1 billion announced in February 2023 and $1 billion announced in December 2021. Also on page 3, an article entitled Consumer Confidence Slips Below Predictions. Index of Americans' Assessment Grew for the Three Months Prior. American consumers are feeling less confident this month as concerns over a possible recession grew despite most recent data pointing to a healthy U.S. economy. The Conference Board, a business research group, said Tuesday its Consumer Confidence Index fell to 106.7 from a revised 110.9 in January. Analysts had predicted the index would remain steady from January to February. The decline in the index comes after three straight months of improvement. The index measures both Americans' assessment of current economic conditions and their outlook for the next six months. The index measuring Americans' short-term expectations for income, business, and the job market fell to 79.8 from 81.5 in January. Consumers' view of current conditions also retreated, falling to 147.2 from 154.9. Consumer spending accounts for about 70% of U.S. economic activity, so economists pay close attention to consumer behavior as they take measure of the broader economy. 
Overall, confidence is barely above the average from last year, which was 105.4, according to economist Stephen Stanley. And finally, a brief article entitled Key Witness Evasive in Georgia Trump Case. A former law partner of Fulton County Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade was evasive on the witness stand Tuesday as lawyers pressed him on details about a romantic relationship between Wade and District Attorney Fonnie Willis that has roiled the 2020 Georgia election case against Donald Trump. Terrence Bradley, who also served for a time as Wade's divorce attorney, was expected to be a key witness for lawyers seeking to remove Willis from one of four criminal cases against the former president. But when they questioned him, Bradley repeatedly said he did not know or could not remember when Willis and Wade's relationship began. Defense lawyers appeared to grow increasingly frustrated with his lack of answers, with Trump's lawyer at one point essentially accusing Bradley of lying. Defense attorneys are seeking to undercut Willis and Wade's claims about when their romantic relationship began as they push to have the pair disqualified. And that does it for today's reading of the Globe Gazette for February 28, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. And uh, now we continue with the reading of the Messenger for February 28, 2024. On the front page, the main article is entitled Inviting Inclusivity, Diversity Action Troop Reaches Out to Elementary Students. When Fort Dodge Senior High drama teacher Lindy Krug started the Diversity Action Troop, She said her goal was to allow students of color to see themselves in more areas of life than they had in the past. Now in its third year, the Diversity Action Troop has done that and more, making an impact on students at both the high school and the elementary buildings. Diversity Action Troop is something I had been kicking around in my head for about five years, said Krug. It's mirrored after the Black Action Troop that I worked with at the University of Iowa when I was in college. The idea stemmed from the fact that I could see students of color gravitating toward athletics in our schools, but I didn't see the same diversity in our fine arts. Two years ago, the Diversity Action Troop spent time planning and creating a vision, said Krug. Last year, the group group did two events at the high school. This year, the students are doing outreach work at the elementary schools. They've done events at Duncombe, Fieldhaver, and Butler, and have plans to work with Cooper, the Early Childhood Education Center, and the middle school in the future. The kids are doing some storytelling and some poetry with each of the elementaries. For the younger kids, we talk about all the colors in a crayon box and how they are all important. The older students did fill-in-the-blank poetry to show how we are different, but we have a lot of the same wishes and goals for our lives. Krug said the students from the high school have taken the lead on what presentations to do at each of the schools. 
She said, it's been satisfying to see them take on that responsibility. I absolutely love that. It builds leadership skills, and there is a pride factor where they can say, we did this, we created this. She said she reached out to all the elementary schools to gauge their interest in having the Diversity Action Troop present at their schools. She initially envisioned maybe an all-school assembly, but it's worked out where small groups of students meet with individual classes. I think they get more interaction with the smaller groups. It's more intimate, she said, and that way they aren't missing a full day of school here. I can have two students for an hour and another two for an hour. Krug said the feedback from elementary teachers has been positive. She's seen several Facebook posts from elementary schools raving about the Diversity Action Troop's visits. Last fall, Krug reached out to the University of Iowa Theater Department and told them what she'd been doing at the school and asked if there was a way to collaborate. She was put in contact with Isaac Adai, and they decided to bring artists from the university to Fort Dodge to work with her students. Adai is part of the Darwin Turner Action Theater, the new name for Iowa's Black Action Troupe. She said her students were able to do a workshop for a few hours and learned how to better build their stories and better get their voice out to the community. My job as an educator is to provide learning opportunities for all my students. What I noticed is that students of color in this community don't often see themselves in the fine arts. I hope I'm doing my part in showing my students the possibilities and giving them avenues to pursue that they might not have thought of before, she said. As for the path going forward, Krug said she's letting students take the lead on that as well. I want them to figure it out. The program is for them, so whatever they want to get out of it, I'm willing to let them do it, she said. She said they are planning an event at Cooper in March and the Early Childhood Education Center in April. They are also hoping to get into the middle school this school year. Krug said she's always looking for new students to join the group. She said she schedules an MTSS session each Monday at the high school for the students to meet. Anyone who would like to be part of the Diversity Action Troop can join her MTSS that day. Also on the front page, an article entitled Man Chokes to Death in Iowa Nursing Home, listed among the nation's worst. A troubled Iowa nursing home that has been repeatedly cited for failing, failure, failing to provide residents with a safe environment has now been cited for contributing to a man's death. Since October 2022, the Aspire of Gowrie Nursing Home in Webster County has been cited by the state for 116 quality of care violations and been the focus of 26 complaints. Currently, it is one of two Iowa nursing homes on the federal government's list of special focus facilities, which are some of the worst care facilities in the nation. The most recent incident at the Gallery home 
involves a resident who choked to death on his dinner in early January. The staff at the home was aware the man was at risk of choking and had given him the Heimlich maneuver on three prior occasions. In December 2022, when he choked on French toast, in February 2023, when he choked on bread, and in March 2023, when he choked on a tortilla. According to inspectors, the man was to be given no bread, with the rest of his food cut into bite-sized pieces prior to being served. Despite that, he was allegedly served bread and uncut bone-in chicken for his dinner on January 5, 2024. A short time later, a certified nursing assistant who was working in the dining room saw the man choking and gasping for air. The CNA, who later told Inspector she didn't know the Heimlich maneuver, summoned a nurse who tried to remove the food that was blocking the man's airway and then performed CPR after he became unresponsive. The man was rushed to a nearby hospital where the staff removed a large piece of food from his airway, according to inspectors, and later pronounced him dead due to lack of oxygen caused by the aspiration of food. According to the inspectors, the man's diet card, used by the staff to help prepare his meals, stated choking hazard, bite-sized food, and food cut into bite-size. A review of personnel records indicated that after the death, a cook was given a written warning for failing to follow proper procedures in food preparation. She later told inspectors that she had relied on a cheat sheet for meal preparation, not the dietary cards, and that the sheet omitted any information about the need to cut up the man's food. The staff at Aspire of Gallery was unable to locate the cheat sheet for inspectors. In addition to being cited for the resident's death, Aspire of Gallery was cited for numerous other violations, including a strong offensive urine odor in one area of the building. A maintenance worker told inspectors he was aware of the smell, but that the facility did not have the budget to buy the cleansers to get the smell out. The room was also cited for a failure to ensure all residents were seen by a physician once every 60 days. Failure to ensure residents were given at least two showers per week. Failure to respond appropriately to residents injured in falls. Failure to respond appropriately to residents' weight loss. And failure to offer or provide residents with their full meals and their nighttime snacks. Aspire of Gallery was also cited for unsanitary conditions in the kitchen, with the inspector making note of a thick coating of yellow grime on shelving, garbage strewn on the floor, and grease and grime on appliances and the floor. The inspector also reported stained and dirty carpets in the hallways of the facility, as well as frayed, bunched carpeting that posed a lip tripping hazard for residents. Many of the violations had been cited during previous state inspections, and inspectors concluded the home had failed to correct deficiencies related to nine of 21 previously identified areas of concern. In total, the recent inspection resulted in 22 regulatory violations and $28,000 in state fines 
all of which have been suspended by the state so the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service can consider imposing federal penalties in the case. On four occasions within the past 17 months, Aspire of Gallery has been cited for the same serious Class I violation, failing to provide a safe environment for residents. The safety violations were tied to a failure to protect residents from sexual abuse, squirting glue rather than eye drops into a resident's eye, inoperable door alarms to prevent residents from wandering away, and the January 5 choking death. In all, the state has proposed $107,000 in fines against the home during the past 17 months, all held in suspension. Federal records indicate the CMS has fined Aspire of Gallery a total of 193,896 during those same 17 months. Last year, Aspire of Gallery had CMS' lowest possible rating for overall quality health inspections and staffing levels. Currently, the home has no CMS ratings at all due to its status in a special focus facility. CMF records indicate the home is a for-profit venture owned by Blackhawk Healthcare, a limited liability corporation, and that Bruce Wertheim of Beacon Health Management in Tampa, Florida, owns 100% of the company and exerts managerial and operational control of the home. Wertheim could not be reached for comment on Tuesday. Again, on the front page, we find an article entitled Senate Panel Advances Bill to Change Community College Funding Oversight. A bill allowing a council of community college leaders to determine the formula for distributing state funds each year has passed out of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee. Senate File 2373 would form a, quote, President's Council, close quote, of community college presidents and chancellors that would be responsible for creating the formula for distribution of state funds to the state's community colleges. The council would require 10 out of its 15 members to approve the formula each year. If the group could not agree on a formula, the Department of Education would take over. It would also strike the current aid formula, which community colleges for Iowa Executive Director Emily Shields said has not been updated in 20 years and its requirements from the Iowa Code. Representatives from community colleges and organizations overseeing them voiced their support for the bill, saying it will help lessen inequities in funding between the colleges. Iowa Central Community College President Jesse Ulrich said the college currently receives about $2,700 per student in state funding compared to a neighboring college that receives more than $6,000. What hopefully our legislature is recognizing is that we know that there is a problem and your community college system is taking proactive steps to fix the problem, Ulrich said. The legislation was signed by Subcommittee Chair Senator Tim Crayenbrink, a Republican from Fort Dodge, 
and Senator Jeff Taylor, a Republican from Sioux City. Taylor said what gave him confidence in the bill was the fact that the community college leaders are unanimous in their support of it. Subcommittee, subcommittee member Senator Cindy Winkler, a Democrat from Davenport, said she'd like to see the bill require the Division of Higher Education to handle the formula if the council cannot approve one, rather than leaving it to the Department of Education in order to ensure the people with the most expertise would be making the decision. Another question she brought up related to high school students enrolled in both high school and college classes. Currently, concurrently enrolled students are included in headcounts for community college funding, but the money those programs generate goes through K-12 funding channels. Winkler said, and those dollars are not accounted for in the bill. Those funds totaled around $40 million in fiscal year 2021, Winkler said, and they need to be a part of this conversation. She also expressed concerns about the lack of stability and predictability that could come from striking requirements of the funding formula from the code, even if agreements have been made among college leaders to not allow any backwards movement in funding to happen at any college. Ulrich said these agreements have been made, but Winkler said they should be put in writing under administrative rules or another label, so those agreements are protected as administrations change. We wouldn't want to do anything that suddenly closes the doors of a rural community college because we understand the importance of the workforce training and what we do all across the strait, Ulrich said. Cranebrink said the subcommittee would recommend its passing with an amendment in which some of the questions brought up could be addressed. The bill will move ahead to the Senate Appropriations Committee. And finally, on the front page, we have the article entitled Taking Center Stage with Kara McGonigal. McGonigal found her passion through school involvement. Kara McGonigal credits her decision to be as active as possible with walking the halls of St. Edmunds High School for leading her to find a career choice. McGonigal, a Gale senior, has been involved in jazz, concert, and Gale Force band, along with several other activities and sports over the past four years. I feel that being active in high school is the best way to make friends and memories, McGonagall said. If I had not gotten into the many activities I am involved in, I would not have found my passion for music, and that has made me the person I am today. Through these activities, I have grown as a student, musician, and most of all, a person. Her decision to join certain programs was sparked by one key reason. I started in a lot of my activities because my friends were involved and I wanted to participate with them. But from there, my desire to expand and learn everything I can led me to join more and more, she said. I love helping people and learning new things and will jump at any new opportunity to make a difference in the lives of others. Eventually, 
I have gotten to the point where I almost never say no to a new opportunity, club, or activity to take part in. Other areas that have kept McGonagall busy include student ambassador, pastoral council, quiz bowl, youth group, student council, honor society, yearbook club, 4-H, golf, and being a softball manager. Through all of my clubs and activities, most of my memories have come from the musical ensembles I have been a part of, McGonagall said. Although my band journey has been full of ups and downs, all of my best friends and my best memories have come from the people that I have made music with for the past four years. Whether it's the inside jokes made freshman year during band class, to the games played during jazz team times my junior year, where every single moment I have been involved in music has created the best memories and formed my second family that I will never forget. I wouldn't trade any of these memories or people for the world. McGonagall will finish both her high school and Associate of Arts degree in May and plans to double major in instrumental music, education, and psychology with minors in social and emotional learning and mental health. After finishing these degrees, I plan to get my master's in school psychology and my doctorate in education, specializing in educational leadership, she said. With these degrees, I plan to be a secondary band teacher while assisting in schools as a counselor or advisor. I also eventually want to move on to being a principal or superintendent. On page two, we find an article entitled $1 billion donation makes New York medical school tuition free and transforms students' lives. First-year student Samuel Wu had been considering a career in cardiology so he would be able to pay off his medical school debt until the announcement this week of a generous donation that will remove tuition fees at his New York City school. Now, without the fear of crippling student death, the 23-year-old from South Korea said Tuesday that he can afford to pursue his dream of providing medical services to people living on the streets. I was definitely very emotional, and it changes a lot, said Wu, who had been working as a tutor and at a cafe to help cover his costs. Ruth Gotsman, a former professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the widow of a Wall Street investor, announced Monday that she is donating $1 billion to the school in the Bronx. The gift means that four-year students immediately go tuition-free while everyone else will benefit in the fall. Another first-year, Jade Andrade, whose parents emigrated from the Philippines to rural Virginia, had a similar reaction. A big wave of relief just came over me, and you know everyone surrounding me in the auditorium. Both students expressed hope that Gotland's generous gift would open doors for more low-income students from immigrant families who could not otherwise have afforded to pursue a career in medicine. The donation is notable not just for its size, possibly the largest to any U.S. medical school, according to Montefiore Einstein, the umbrella organization for Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the Montefiore Health System, 
but also because the school is located in one of the most impoverished parts of the city and the state of New York. There are people here in the Bronx who are first generation, low income students who really want to be doctors and want to pursue medicine and want to practice here, but just aren't able to have the opportunity, whether that is financial reasons or lack of resources. Wu said, I'm still hoping that the free tuition helps alleviate some of the pressure of those students and encouraging them to think of medicine as, you know, a potentially acceptable field. Andre, 30, called the announcement liberating. Growing up in an immigrant household, there are very few life decisions that you make without thinking of the financial aspects of it in terms of, you know, is this like a worthy investment of my time? This is something I want to do, but can I afford it? She said. But once you remove the financial burden, anyone can dream bigger. Astonished students and faculty rose to their feet, clapping, cheering, some crying after Goetzman, 91, announced her donation. She has been affiliated with the college for 55 years and is the chairperson of its board of trustees. School officials said they hoped free tuition would attract a diverse pool of applicants, though it has no plans to change its admissions policy. They said the donation should last for perpetuity since interest earned means the lump sum will continue to grow. All students will qualify for the free tuition. Tuition at the school is currently $63,000 a year, leaving graduate students with mountains of debt that can take decades to repay. The Education Data Initiative says medical graduates, on average, leave school with $202,453 in debt. Other schools in decidedly wealthier areas have also benefited from generous donations. In 2018, Kenneth and Elaine Langone gave $100 million to the NYU Grossman School of Medicine that went to an endowment fund to make tuition free for all current and future medical students. And in 2023, the Langones gave $200 million to the NYU Grossman Long Island School of Medicine to endow a full tuition scholarship program and guarantee free tuition for all medical students. Kenneth Langone is a co-founder of Home Depot. UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine offers merit-based scholarships thanks to some $146 million in donations from the recording industry mogul. Goetzman credited her late husband David Sandy Goetzman for leaving her with the financial means to make the donation. David Goetzman built the Wall Street Investment House First Manhattan and was on the board of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. He died in 2022 at age 96. And that does it for today's reading of The Messenger for February 28, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening.